we turn to the fifth chapter of Esther, it's a story we've been spending some time in these past few weeks. We've been kind of jumping around the story from later to earlier to, to lift up certain aspects of what we find in this powerful tale, the secret agents of the story, if you will. And we turn today to what's typically titled Esther's Banquet. And she is coming before the king to make her request on behalf of the Jewish people. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace opposite the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside the palace opposite the entrance to the palace. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter as was the tradition and the practice. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom." Nestor said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. While they were drinking wine, the king said to, uh, the king said to Esther, what is your peti- petition? It, it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther said, this is my petition and request. If I've won the king's favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. And then I will do as the king has said. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. What a quirky place in this story in which we find ourselves, oh God, this redundancy and repetitiveness and banquets and more banquets and what's going on. Help us to find some wisdom in it, some reality in life that perhaps If we uncover a few things, we might just see. Our prayer, of course, is that you speak to us, that we may hear, and that our lives may reflect the word you give us today. In Christ's name, amen. So we have been spending time in the story of Esther. It's a tale, as you recall, uh, if if you know it, about a young Jewish girl who's orphaned and grows up with her cousin, and they're living in exile together. And through a number of seemingly random circumstances and happenstances, she ends up becoming queen and ultimately saves her people from execution by changing the mind of the king on that particular deal. What we've learned is that this story was written 
to help the Jewish people remain faithful to God while living in exile, that it, in its wonderfully subtle and direct ways, all at the same time, presents their own situation of the lack of control they have in this story. It presents it to them and helps the people to remain faithful to God through all of that. That's why it's there. We've called it a story of bravery, a story of humor, a story of hospitality, Agent H, as I understand it, and now today a story of persuasion. Persuasion. Persuasion is one of those things that every single one of us would like to have more of more ability to persuade. Wouldn't it be great if we could persuade everyone we would like to persuade to see things our way after all because it is the right way, of course. Wouldn't that be to just be able to pull a Jedi mind trick on anybody we wanted? These are not the droids you are searching for. Oh, these are not the droids I'm searching You will take out the trash I will take out the track. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just, you'll do it because I said so. (laughs) There are all kinds of books and websites that you can go to to learn to hone some skills and tools in the art of persuading, so to speak. You can go to a weekend seminar, you know. Come learn how to persuade the one you love in three easy steps, right? If it were only truly that simple. Persuasion. You know, if I were to put on a a persuasion seminar, it would take all of ten minutes. I'd simply say, I'm glad you're here. Go read the story of Esther. All throughout this whole thing, Esther seems to have the special something that is required in persuading other people. She's got it in spades. She just seems to have this whole thing down to a a science, Esther does. When she finds her way into the courts of the palace, when the king is searching for a new queen, she wins the eye of the eunuch who's in charge of all the candidates. Haggai just loves her to death. In fact, loves her so much, basically puts her in the front of the line. She does the same thing to the king. She catches his eye and captures his heart. She has that special something that endears those around her, endears herself to them. She's got it. She just she wins the king over so much that it is so it is so ridiculously obvious when you're reading the story that we're sitting there saying, you can ask him anything you want to ask him anytime you want. I mean, it's so obvious. He even said it himself. And yet, when she finally gets up the gumption and the courage to go make the request on behalf of the people, what does she put into all this effort? And we're saying, you don't, you don't need that stuff. He'll do it. We're telling you. No, she dresses up in the royal robes and the whole thing. and stand. You could go in your dirty pajamas. He does not care. He will say yes. We're already saying this as we get to this point in the story. And what does she do? She gets up there and he says, what is it? What do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. And we're saying that. He'll give you half the kingdom. Come on. And 
Come to a banquet, she says. A banquet? Why? You don't need a banquet. Okay, we'll go to a banquet. And we go to this banquet, and surely here, finally, when we get to that part, she's going to make this request finally and forever, and it's going to come out, and everything's going to be okay, because we know he's going to say yes. And what does she say? Well, why don't you come to another banquet that I've made? What? Why? What are you waiting for? You've got this thing. Make the request. He's going to say yes. At this point in the story, everyone is dying for it to happen. The king is dying to know what this request of hers is. Haman, who cares about nothing other than himself, he's even dying to know what this request she's going to make. And we too, even though we know what the request is, we're dying to know if she's actually going to do it or not. Are you going to? All of us, every single person in and around this story is standing on the, sitting on the edge of our seat, waiting with bated breath, is it? going to happen she has every single one of us in the palm of her hand that's the power of persuasion and she's got it boy there are all kinds of suggestions as to what this second banquet is all about. Scholars have a field day with this stuff. I mean, it's good job security. They just go after it. we got all kinds of suggestions. It's good. What is this? One of those suggestions has to do with the number three. You know, she actually makes a request of him three times. She comes and then asks again, then finally asks. It's this number three, and that's a, that's a biblical Number. It's a number that represents completeness or fulfillment in the Bible. And a lot of things happen in terms of three. Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish, a full, complete transformation of Jonah. In the... Jesus rose on the third day. The idea, the theological understanding of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this three is, is whether you understand it or not, the three represents the completeness, the fullness of God. It's, a, it's about the three as much as it is anything else. It's a very powerful spiritual number in the Bible. And some say this story is just honoring that, saying, you know, it's this three that, that's really going on. That makes sense. Others' suggestions include things like, well, the writer is just building up more suspense, you know, for the sake of just pulling us along and and building up the suspense, after all, you know, to a ridiculous level. I mean, who needs two banquets? It's crazy. But yet, it does fit the character of the story. The whole story has these ridiculous circumstances within it and around. And this just fits right in, you know. This is ridiculous too. And it's just propped up to, lifted up to that level. And that's what it is. And finally, there's a suggestion that really, Esther is just, she's, she's very, being savvy, smart, and manipulative. She's got her little little devious plan that she's not going to take any chances with. I happen to think amongst all of that that there's actually something else. That it really is none of these things. 
And it's always fun to disagree with scholars, so there's that. But it, I just think there's an element that of, of truthfulness here. That the hesitation of needing another, you know, king says, make your request, I'll do it. She said, well, come to a, this hesitation. What, I actually think that's, that's real, that that's actually who Esther is that she's actually hesitant and that this is what that really looks like. That when she hesitates, she's really hesitating. It's not a writer's thing. It's, the, it's true to the character. And isn't that more like real life after all? I mean, when we get into tricky spots in our life where we don't have necessarily a clear path don't we become hesitant and unsure of ourselves? I mean, we make plans, but then we what? We second-guess them. Is that really going to work? I don't know. Let's, let's put it off a little bit. Let's punt just one more time just to be sure. We do it all the time, so it's actually more real to life, this, this hesitation. And gets right up to it and gets cold feet. It's kind of, oh, okay, let's, how about tomorrow? Right? That it's in fact the genuine Esther coming out, her humility and respectfulness. And that in fact it's those very things that endear her to the king's heart in the first place. It's those real qualities about her that capture all of us. He sees something, something special that speaks to him, persuades him. Isn't that the best kind of persuasion after all? When God sneaks up on you through the life of another person. That's what he sees. He sees something beautiful and special and, and holy and it causes the king to rethink the whole of his life and the kind of king he wants to be. And then when he, re he learns of the situation she's been in watching her people as queen suffer and, and could have requested it all along, but no, she does it with grace and respect and humility and that even more makes him re reflect and appreciate her even more. It's that quality, that something beautiful and special that we see in others when they're going through huge difficulty that speak to us the most. You ever seen that in another person? You ever had someone surprise you with the presence of God by what they're going through? I'd like to share with you someone who has recently affected my life that way. Some of you know Carl Travis, who is the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth, a vibrant, wonderful, great just big old church, just great place. And Carl is one of those people, he is one of the most brilliant and caring pastors that I've come across. I just, I love him to death and I, call, I consider it a deep privilege to be his colleague and our growing friendship. 
past couple of years, though, Carl has come across some physical ailments that have debilitated him somewhat. Started off with some pain and discomfort, and he went to the doctor, and they realized that he was having clotting issues, that he is, some, for some reason, susceptible to blood clots. So they gave him medicine, right? They gave him thinners and the stuff you give him. And the problem is the medicine didn't work. So they changed the medicine. They changed the medicine again and again and again and again. None of it worked. They changed their approach again and again and again. They brought in whole teams of people. He's flown across the country to specialists in hematology. None of them can figure out what this issue is that is causing his blood to clot and creating all this immobilization for him. And all. They put in a stent to help with blood flow, thinking that might even at least help. It's gotten worse. Last fall, his leg began to swell up so bad that he couldn't walk if he was on it too much. In fact, he had to have part of his foot removed and spend a month in the hospital recovering. It's been constant with no answers. None whatsoever. It's wreaked havoc on him, his family, his church, church that loves him dearly as we all do. And yet, every Sunday, he's in the pulpit. He's preached from a wheelchair, from a stool, with a cane, whatever it takes. He does it because that's who he is. He's led seminars that I've attended and just been amazed at this guy and his energy and his outlook because when you ask him how he's doing, you want to know what he says? He doesn't gripe. He doesn't complain. He looks at you and you believe him because he says, I've never felt more blessed in my entire life. I've never felt more blessed than I do today. He used to be an avid bicycler. You'd find him riding the trails in Fort Worth in his off time. Of course, he can't do that anymore. I'll find some other place for my passion, he says. Last week, evidently, was not a bad, not a good Sunday. It was a bad day. And yet there he was. At the end of the last service, he actually needed to go to the emergency room at Harris Methodist Hospital. And after assessing him, they discovered that the clotting had now formed around his lungs. And that they needed to remove the stent because they now believed that the stent was now causing more problems than solutions, that it had actually made things worse, not better, that the stuff in his leg was all caused, and it's all wrapped up, and they're just learning as they go along. They have no clue. And that's what, that is not a safe procedure if there is such a thing. It's a 50-50 shot of survival. But he did it. And when he woke up in recovery... A mutual friend of ours who's known him for a long time asked him, said, tell me, you can tell me, how are you doing? You know what he said. I've never felt more blessed than I do right at this very moment. God is amazing. First words out of his mouth. Now I look at and listen to people like Carl who deal with 
chronic pain with no answers. I look at people like that and some have dealt with it their whole life and may deal with that kind of thing their entire life with not so much as a clue and somehow what I see from them, what I hear from them is they somewhere in some miraculous way find the strength to stand up and take on another day with a smile and even in the midst of that do something wonderful for someone else. If anyone has a reason to run to the top of the highest hill and curse God to its face, to his face, it's people like Carl. But they don't. He doesn't. I feel blessed, he says. Blessed, I tell you. I look at people like that and you know what I see? I see something beautiful. That special something. Holy. I see what the king saw in Esther. You know what I see? I see Christ. I look at them, I listen to them. I see Jesus Christ. And it melts my heart. It causes me to rethink the whole of my life and how petty we can be to one another. Changes me completely. That's what Christ does. It's the most amazing kind of persuasion that I know of. Amen.